Hello, my friends. This is the Red Diva, Persephone Rose. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Sovereign Health Podcast. I am, as usual, recording in my antique apartment in the heart of the Willamette Valley in the beautiful PNW. Today, there is still road construction in my neighborhood, and in addition to causing an incredible parking situation for those of us who live here, it is happening at an unholy volume. So I am experimenting with some water and bird sounds playing in the background. Both of those things supposedly reset the electromagnetic field of the human brain. I don't actually know if that's true, but I want it to be. I had the joy of nerding out with a textbook from grad school in preparation for this episode. Uh, A little bit of light reading in Mark's Nutritional Biochemistry. It's a really good read, I dare you. I got a little lost in it and missed an appointment yesterday. I had to tell my reflexologist that I forgot she existed because I was mesmerized by the beta oxidation of fats that there's this molecule called acetyl-CoA that the production of energy in the human body literally revolves around, and it is fascinating. And that at an even deeper level, what really affects whether a fat gets turned into ATP or a ketone is the presence of extra NADH or FAD2H because everything in biochemistry is about electron exchanges. Today, We're diving deep into the structure of fat and its use in energy production. There is some sciencey detail in this episode, so please feel free to hit pause and rewind as needed. I include this level of detail not just because I'm a nerd, but because understanding the how helps us understand the why. And when we understand the why, we can make informed decisions every time we put food in our mouth. I've been saying that fat is my favorite macro, and it's mainly because it's so dang versatile. The structure and function of every cell in the human body depends on there being enough fat in the daily diet, but also a diversity of types of fat in the daily diet. Today, I want to describe to you what a fat molecule looks like and how it is used for fuel. In our very dualistic, binary minds, we tend to get stuck in this philosophical debate between carb loading for physical exertion at one extreme and being in a sustained long-term state of ketosis at the other extreme. In our current culture and food system, most people live their lives in a state of carbohydrate dependency. And then fads come along based on truth, where the pendulum swings so far in the other direction. But the ideal goal is a term that we call metabolic flexibility, where our mitochondria the energy factories in every cell in the body know how to produce both ATP and ketones in the correct amounts, in the correct ratio 
depending upon the needs of the cells and the systems and the entire body, moment by moment, day by day, in real time. There are body tissues, like the liver, that cannot use ketones for fuel. There are other tissues that can survive but not thrive, like the brain, on ATP from glucose. When we eat at one extreme or the other, we take away our mitochondria's innate ability to make those moment-by-moment decisions, if you will, to act in the best interest of our bodies. We, in fact, curb the innate wisdom of our body to live and act in sovereignty. And in all cases, in any situation where we curb sovereignty, the end result is unvibrancy and ill health. Fats are just one type of lipid which is a category of molecules classified by their inability to play well with water. Lipids are, by definition, hydrophobic. They are nonpolar, and they are made up mostly of hydrocarbon chains. A fat molecule consists of two parts, a glycerol backbone and three fatty acid tails. So glycerol plus three fatty acids, triglyceride. Glycerol is a small organic molecule with three hydroxyl groups or three OHs, while a fatty acid consists of a long hydrocarbon chain that's attached to a carboxyl group, which is a COOH. So The hydroxyl group on the glycerol reacts with the carboxyl group on the fatty acid, and that yields a fat molecule with three fatty acid tails that are bound to the glycerol backbone via a bond with an O next to a C and a double bond O, blah, 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 ester linkages, blah, 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 biochemistry. Triglycerides may contain three identical fatty acid tails or three different fatty acid tails with different lengths or different patterns of double bonds. What I would really love for you to visualize is that hydrocarbon chain that makes up a fatty acid. Picture a long line of carbons or Cs, the letter C, attached to each other. And around the edges, anywhere there is an attachment point available, there are hydrogen molecules or H's attached to those C's. So it's a long chain of carbons inside a sheath of hydrogens. Now, one of these hydrocarbon chains can be anywhere from as few as four carbons long. Think short chain fatty acid, all the way up to around 36 carbons long, long chain fatty acid. Most are around 12 to 18 carbons long, and these are medium chain fatty acids. Any given triglyceride can have 
fatty acids that are all identical in length, or all three may contain different numbers of carbons. So the next thing I want you to visualize is that all of those carbons are typically, mostly, connected by single bonds. One pair of electrons is being shared. If there are only single bonds between neighboring carbons in the hydrocarbon chain, that fatty acid is said to be saturated. The thing that fatty acids are saturated with is hydrogen. As many hydrogen atoms as possible are attached to the carbon skeleton. There are no breaks in the sheath. These saturated fats have no kinks, no bends, and so they lay flat. They pack together nicely, and so they form a solid at room temperature. Now, when the hydrocarbon chain contains a double bond, where two of the carbons are sharing two sets of electrons, the fatty acid is said to be unsaturated, as it now has fewer hydrogens, because a carbon cannot now bond to a hydrogen because it is bonding with another carbon in two different places. In that chain of carbons, whether it's only four carbons or 18 or 36, if there is just one double bond in that fatty acid, it is monounsaturated. While if there are multiple bonds, it is polyunsaturated. Those double bonds can happen on the same side of the carbon chain which creates kind of a U-shaped bend in the chain, or they can happen on opposite sides of the carbon chain, which creates more of a zigzag or a lightning bolt bend in the chain. So how long a fatty acid is, whether it is saturated or not, and how those double bonds may have created U-bends or zigzags, determines the structure and function of a fatty acid as well as that of the triglyceride that it is a part of. The structure and function of a fatty acid of a fat determines how it is used to build structure and function in the body. And this is why there is not an answer to the question, what is the best type of fat to eat? You have to eat them all. In the third episode of this series on fat, I'm going to talk about a bunch of different types of fat, the foods that they come in, and some of the important uses in the body. But for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to talk about how fats are used to create fuel. Let's review a little. When a glucose molecule is turned into fuel, it first goes through an eight-step biochemical process called glycolysis that happens 
in the cytoplasm of the cell and produces a little ATP, some NADH, which is an electron carrier, and two molecules of pyruvate. The ATP is available as fuel. The NADH is forwarded to the electron transport chain, where each molecule of NADH produces more ATP. That pyruvate then enters the mitochondria and goes through an oxidation process that snips some parts off, oxidizes the rest to produce NADH, and then attaches the acetyl group that is left to a coenzyme A, which incidentally is synthesized from vitamin B5. And the resulting molecule is called acetyl-CoA. That acetyl-CoA molecule then enters the citric acid cycle, also called the Krebs cycle, also called the TCA cycle, which is an intricately beautiful system of enzymatic redox reactions. And the beauty of this cycle is not in the one molecule of ATP that it produces, but in the impressive amount of electron carriers in ADH and FADH2 that it spits out. And all of those electron carriers are then put through the electron transport chain to produce quite a bit more ATP. So for one molecule of glucose put through that whole process, we get about 32 molecules of ATP. Now let's look at a fatty acid. Fatty acids are acted upon by an enzyme that uses ATP to attach the fatty acid to an acyl group and to a coenzyme A. That forms a fatty acyl-CoA molecule, which then is able to cross into the mitochondrial matrix via the carnitine shuttle and undergoes beta-oxidation. Beta-oxidation involves snipping off two carbon atoms at a time from that fatty acyl-CoA molecule and producing a molecule of acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA sounds familiar, right? Acetyl-CoA goes back to the TCI cycle, produces a bunch of electron carriers, and feeds the electron transport chain to produce ATP. Now, every fatty acid that this happens to is a different length, right? So it's going to have a different number of two-carbon snippets to cut off. So each fatty acid is going to produce a different amount of ATP. But as an example, one 16-carbon palmitic acid molecule will produce 107 molecules of ATP compared to the 32 you can get out of one molecule of glucose. Consider also that you're skipping the process of glycolysis, which is pretty free radical heavy, and you're replacing it with beta oxidation, which is relatively clean. Now, when the body is using fat as fuel, it is producing a lot. 
of those electron carriers NADH and FADH2 because the TCA cycle is happening a lot more frequently. When a certain threshold of these electron carriers is reached, the body knows that there will continue to be enough ATP in the system to ensure the energy needs of the liver. And that triggers an off switch or really a slowing down of the enzyme that escorts acetyl-CoA into the TCA cycle. Instead, acetyl-CoA is shuttled into a completely different biochemical pathway that produces acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate, which are ketone bodies. At the same time, glycolysis slows down because ketones are a much more efficient fuel. One ketone body is equal to about 21 and a half molecules of ATP. Now, the brain, the nervous system, the intestinal lining all prefer and thrive using ketones as fuel. All tissue cells, with the exception of liver cells and red blood cells, can use ketones for fuel. Skeletal cells, Muscle cells prefer to use fatty acids for producing ATP because they like ATP, but that biochemistry is cleaner and more efficient. I want to note also, though, that even in the presence of fatty acids for fuel, of ketones for fuel, and high levels of electron carriers, when you ingest carbohydrates, glucose, an insulin reaction will kick in. Glycolysis will start up again, as will the shuttling of glucose into fat cells if needed. And that more efficient fuel-producing beta-oxidation will slow down because the presence of excess glucose in the vascular system is so dangerous. Your body will go into triage mode. Isn't fat amazing? It is an amazing multi-use tool. And as previously stated numerous times, my favorite macronutrient. So here's the deal. I have enjoyed being in a state of nutritional ketosis for short periods of time. My brain loves that energy surge, and it is a really efficient way to balance blood sugar. But staying there involves a lot of food monitoring and tracking that for me is stressful and cortisol producing over time. There's a lot of science showing the positive outcomes from raising fat intake and lowering carbohydrate intake, but that's a, a raising and a lowering from what the average American consumes, which is way too much glucose and way too little fat. So what ends up being called a low-carb, high-fat diet may only be so by comparison to that which contributes to ill health for the average person. 
to reach and stay and maintain nutritional ketosis where you are using mostly ketones for fuel, you have to not eat more than 50 grams of carbohydrate in a day. I might do that for a couple of weeks, a couple of times a year, but where I really try to stay and live is around 150 grams of carbohydrate per day, which is not hard if you are not eating processed toxic crap. If you are eating whole foods and not processed ones, when the majority of your carbohydrates are coming to you in the form of vegetables. But is 150 grams of carbohydrate considerably less than most Americans eat? Yes. But are most Americans incredibly unhealthy? Yes. But please note that I am in a place in my nutritional journey where bread and pasta and white rice are considered processed foods and not real food. That I live by the tenet that nutritionally, there is nothing a grain, even a whole one, can do for you that a vegetable can't do better. As long as you are intaking enough protein to cover your tissues, neurotransmitters, enzyme needs, and you're getting micronutrients to fuel your biochemistry from vegetables, then to me, the obvious source for fuel is fat. It's simply just more efficient. And efficiency is what happy, healthy, metabolically flexible mitochondria are all about. Our body knows how to produce what kind of fuel and when, if we give it the right resources in the right ratios. This has been episode seven of the Sovereign Health Podcast. This is Persephone Rose. I am the Red Diva, and I do appreciate your listening ears. Remember that acts of nourishment are also radical acts of defiance against the status quo. That the powers that be may not want you healthy, but that you can always stack the odds in your favor. Live sovereign, my friends. And now, go out and have a beautiful day. Oh,